We are in the midst of a teaching series in the book of Psalms, obviously not going through the entire book of Psalms. That would take 150 weeks, uh, if not more, because Psalm 119 is forever long as well. Uh, But what we are doing is taking this bigger theme of worship that shows up in the Psalms. The Psalms, in some ways, are a worship book, and showing that in the minds of the psalmists, and really in the mind of God, we are worshipers, that worship is a way of life for us. And so we've called this Worship is Life, uh, and we've talked about the ways in which worship is our identity, and worship is a, a reminder for us of who God is and what He's done, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances. He can be our refuge uh, and our tower. And this morning we want to look at this idea of worship as restoration. Worship as restoration. And so what I would suggest to you maybe as a summary statement is that worship is the retelling and the responding to who God is and what God has done. Worship is the retelling and the responding to who God is and what God has done, or to put it in even simpler language, if you're familiar with our language here at Hope, we say, worship is retelling and responding to the gospel. The gospel is the great story of who God is and what God has done uh, in our lives and in our world, especially through Jesus. So, if worship is the retelling and the responding to who God is and what God has done, then this morning we want to look at a pretty famous psalm, a psalm that many of you might be familiar with, Psalm 51. You can go ahead and turn there if you like to. And in Psalm 51, we have the story of David, who is uh, lamenting and confessing his uh, famous sin of adultery with Bathsheba that led to the murder of her husband, Uriah, and all kinds of horrible things. And For many of us, we've really focused in on this aspect of confession that's happening here, and it's a real thing for sure. But this morning, we want to sort of zoom out and see the bigger picture of what's going on in this psalm in terms of worship. Uh, I'll suggest to you three things this morning, and that is that uh, in this psalm, we see an, an affirmation of the story, an affirmation of the restoration, the story of God. And we see a response to the story of God, a response to our restoration. And then in the combination of this affirmation and response, we see what I'll call, I like this word, an enlivening of our restoration. That is a a real embodiment or stepping into this story and making it our own. So in Psalm 51, you have a psalm of lament, a psalm of confession, a psalm of repentance from David. David is the king of Israel. Uh, He has come on the heels of a fallen king named Saul. David is the hero, the one who slew the giant Goliath. He's a man, the scripture says, who has a heart after God's. He's the king the people need and the king that God uh, would bless. And there's this big moment in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel where David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and makes it the national capital And God makes a covenant with David that you will sit on the throne of Israel forever and your sons will be kings of of this nation forever. This Davidic beautiful covenant that happens and only a few short chapters after that, this perfect king named David begins to act in some of the most horrific ways. 
And in the stories of 2 Samuel, we see a king who's supposed to be out fighting, but is at home and lending his gaze to another man's wife, which leads to an adulterous relationship, which leads to an unplanned pregnancy, which leads to a huge plan to cover up this sin that ultimately leads to the murder of this woman's actual husband by sending him to the front lines in battle so he will surely die. And on the heels of all of these sins, God sends a man to David named Nathan, and Nathan is a prophet. He's come to speak the true message of God to David, and he tells David a story, a parable about a man who has all kinds of of animals and another man who only has one. And what if this man who had everything went and took the one animal from the other man and killed it and took it as his own sacrifice? And David says, well, that man should die. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David is distraught and realizes the fullness of his sin against all of these people and ultimately against God. And Nathan says something profound to him. He says, listen, you're not going to die. And we might think, well, what do you mean, not going to die? And what's going on really is David's two major sins here, murder and adultery, in the covenant of the day were each capital offenses. They were each crimes worthy of the death penalty. And Nathan says to him right away, God God has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but there's going to be consequences for this. And in response to that, David sings or writes or says what is now codified into Psalm 51 for us. And I want to read it with you this morning. Psalm 51, this is what David writes. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was an old sort of branchy um, plant that they would use to to dip in the the blood of the sacrifice and to use it to cleanse things. David is speaking this way. Cleanse me with blood sacrifice and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And in writing this, or speaking this, or singing this, David has showed us a full story of restoration and how that engages in worship. What it means for us as people identified as worshipers to worship as means of restoration. So he said, the first thing that he does is that he affirms his restoration. He retells it. He re-speaks who God is and what God has done. And he starts with his own brokenness, doesn't he? In fact, David uses three different words for his brokenness. The first is he says transgressions. And the second word he chooses is iniquity. And then the third word he chooses is a little more common for us, just plain old sin. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Three different words to try to get a full picture of what's going on in human brokenness. In terms of transgression, what's really going on there is this is a word that speaks about rebellion. Uh, In fact, it really speaks about rebellion uh, of overstepping a boundary that you are not supposed to cross. And so if any of you are familiar with old Roman history, probably like one or two of you, uh, these are the weird things that I like. (laughs) Julius Caesar uh, was in good standing with the Senate in Rome so long as he didn't cross the Rubicon River. Do you remember this? Of course you don't, but look it up later. Uh, And so what happens is as soon as he crosses the river, civil war breaks out. It's a transgression. Do you see it? A rebellion against the authority of the Senate by crossing a clear boundary that was set. David says, and I think he speaks for all of humanity, that we are transgressors. In rebellion, we overstep boundaries that are set. Then he uses the word iniquity, and this is a big word that really wants to get at the core of being guilty. There's guilt that goes along with this. We are guilty, and David will say in other places in the psalm that God is right when he judges us. He's just in judging us. So a sense of of guiltiness there. And then the word sin is actually an interesting word too. It's the idea of falling short of a mark or, or not meeting a standard, as it were. And so in using these three words, David's really painting a picture of the truth of his heart and really representing humanity in a fair way. We tend to be rebellious people who move against the ways of God who in fact are guilty because of our rebellion and therefore have fallen short of the standards that God has set for us. But David doesn't leave the brokenness of humanity simply with saying these three words. He also begins to talk bigger in uh, in terms of scope and realities. Do you catch the phrase that he said, my sin is always before me? Do you feel the weight of that? My sin is always before me. I think that is true both in reality and in practice, that he can't seem to not 
keep doing the wrong things. Paul would say something awfully similar to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 7. And then also that the effects of sin are always before us. Our personal brokenness and the brokenness of others and the brokenness of the world, it's always before us. And then he begins to speak about the origin of the reality of sin. He says, again, something fascinating. He says that surely I was sinful from conception. That even in my mother's womb, I was not up to God's standard of faithfulness. That our problem is way, what I want you to understand, and using these three words and using these two phrases of scope, David is saying the problem is way bigger than he can deal with. Do you see it? There's no way that David can make amends for this issue. There's no way that restoration can happen because of David. And the same, I think, is true of all of humanity. And then perhaps the cherry on top, although this is bad news, not a delicious Sunday, uh, is that he says that I understand that in my sin, it was against you, God. And then he follows it up by saying, and only you. Now this is fascinating, right? Because did he not sin against Bathsheba, the woman he looked upon and took as his own, perhaps forcefully? Did he not sin against Uriah, the man whose wife he stole and who he sent to the front lines to be murdered? Did he not sin against all of Israel by, by not being the king that they needed him to be? Well, of course he did, and all of those things. But we need to see the scope of God. That if God really is the creator and the king, then the aim of every single act of sin is ultimately against him. That when we sin against his creation, we also sin against our creator. And when we act in rebellion, we act in rebellion against the one who is the rightful king. And so David gets it just right. Of course he sinned and and harmed all kinds of other people. But ultimately the aim of this sin is against God. And so in all three of these ways, we see the very, 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 very bad situation of the brokenness of humanity. Remember, this is the guy who has said has a heart after God. If he can do this stuff, what about you and me? Right? He uses three huge words to describe it. Says the scope is that it's always happening and it's happened from birth and it's always against God. And then he begins to shift the story just a little bit. And really this happens in the front too as almost a bookend. And he begins to affirm the mercy of God. He affirms the brokenness of humanity. And then he affirms the mercy of God. Very first words, have mercy on me, O God. And mercy, really, if you define it in its core way, is that you do not get what you rightly deserve. Right? So think about grace and mercy like this. So you have, you have, grace is you get something that you don't deserve. And mercy is that you don't get something that you actually do deserve. You have mercy on someone by rescinding a rightful judgment or punishment against them. You have mercy on someone by waiving the debt that they owe to you. You have mercy on, on people by not giving them 
what they deserve. And this is exactly what David is calling on God for. What he's affirming is true about God. He says to God, hide your face from my sins. Imagine this. And then he uses this fascinating phrase, blot out my transgressions. Blot out is a word that really means uh, in some way to pulverize or to, be, or to be done with, to be exterminated completely. But it was also used as sort of like ancient parchments that were kind of expensive, where there would be writing on them and the writing would no longer be valid or appropriate for these days. And so they would, they would blot out the writing so as to preserve the paper so that it could be used again to take on some new writing. And in so doing, we see something very beautiful about the gospel and what David is asking for. He says, hey, preserve me by blotting out all of the evil that has been written on me so that I can receive the things you want to write about me on my heart. David says, blot it out. He calls on God's mercy. Uh, Jim Boyce, who is the the, uh, fantastic uh, Bible scholar, Bible interpreter, preacher, pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, has said this. He says, the mercy of God is the sole characteristic about God on which we would dare ever come into his presence. Forget about the wisdom of God or the omnipotence of God or the omnipresence of God or even the generic love of God, it's the mercy of God by which we would dare ever come into his presence, and Boyce says, and dare ever even hope that something good could come out of the brokenness of ourselves. When I was uh, in high school, uh, I was deeply in love with this girl, right? Whatever that means. And so uh, being a high school student in the early to mid-90s, uh, we were going to hang out one night, and so I got my ripped jeans out, and I found my best flannel shirt. Those were, these were the things of the day. And I dug deep in my drawer and found just a little bit of Dracar Noir from the late 80s and early 90s, and a couple spritzes on me, and I was off. And my parents, uh, they liked this girl, and they said, listen, you need to be home by midnight. That's your curfew, right? It was the summer, school was out. And I said, okay, okay, okay. And so I was hanging out with this girl, and, uh, and we're having a good time, hanging out, watching TV, being with her family, and, and the time is ticking away, and I'm feeling like, I don't want to go home. Uh, and so the curfew comes, and it passes. And then it's 12.30, and then it's 1 o'clock, and then it's 1.30, and then as it's approaching 2 o'clock, I finally say, I, I've got to go home. Uh, And so I get in my car, and I drive away, and I'm trying to make up time I have lost, uh, going fast on roads that are unoccupied until, you know where the story is going, the blue and red lights start flashing in my rearview mirror. Now, this is a hilly road, so every time I cross over a hill, and the blue lights are kind of gone for a minute, I speed up. Right to try to try try to advance while the cops are on the other side of the hill, uh, but unfortunately, I didn't make it home. Uh, I was probably driving at sometimes in excess of ninety miles an hour. This is true, right? And so the cop pulls me over and says, "Do you know how fast you were going?" And I said, "Man, 
Like 70? And she said, that's the first honest answer I said, I've heard tonight. And I thought, that was not honest. (laughs) And so I got home and nothing. And I went to bed and nothing. And I woke up the next morning and my dad was ready for me at the breakfast table. And it was bad enough that I had broken curfew, which he knew. But now I had to share with him what had happened on top of breaking curfew. And my only hope was for mercy. Now, my dad is a good dad, uh, and he gave me a little bit of mercy. But God is a good God who gives us all kinds of mercy. Imagine a situation like I was in, but far worse an adulterous relationship that leads to murder, some of the most heinous sins we can imagine, and having to approach the God of the universe and tell him what you've done. I was petrified to tell my dad. I tried to tell my mom in advance, and she said to me, you're going to have to tell your dad. And I thought, oh, I wanted you to tell my dad. That's what, that's, She's like, I know one thing, you're going to pay the bill with your own money. I was like, I don't mind, I'll pay. And she's like, but there's going to be more. And there was plenty more, trust me. (laughs) And yet, David affirms what is true of God, that he knows this mercy is there for him. And it's unending, and it's a deep pool which can never be fully drained. And therefore, his affirmation of the brokenness of humanity that leads to his affirmation of mercy ultimately leads to his affirmation of what I would call the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the vastness of your loving kindness. The word loving kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, and it really is a marker word that means he's a covenant God. He keeps his covenant. He's the one that loves us no matter what. Has said. And David calls on that and he says, I know you're that God. And therefore he gets bold in Psalm 51 verse 10. And he says, so create in me a brand new heart. The word create there is the exact same word that was used in the opening chapters of Genesis. An ex nihilo, out of nothing, miraculous, supernatural creation. David knows this is the only chance he's got, and he calls on the faithfulness of God for it. Give me a whole new heart. I know you've got to start fresh. And then he says, and cast me not out of your presence, God. And he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Sometimes people have struggled to understand what's going on there. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't we understand that the Holy Spirit can't be taken from us? Well, the truth in the Old Testament was that the Holy Spirit did come and go. And it descended with the people based upon their performance in keeping the covenant. And so the most dramatic and painful experiences of the Old Testament is when the people are about to go into exile... And the Spirit of God is seen ascending to heaven out of the temple. This is what David is saying. Don't do it. And then as king, he understands that he's the anointed one. That he's the one on whom the Spirit has been given for leadership. And he says, don't give up on me in this role, God. 
calling on the faithfulness of God, affirming its truth, and in some ways, I think, church, looking forward to a whole new level of covenant fidelity of God, something that the prophet Jeremiah said would be a new covenant. One where the laws of God would be written on new fleshly hearts. This sounds like David's language. One where the Spirit of God would never depart from his people. One that we know, friends, was brought into fruition by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. That's why at the Last Supper with his closest friends, he said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. A covenant that gives us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. A covenant that promises us the Spirit of God, not based on our performance, but the faithfulness of God. And so we have in David, someone who in worship affirms his restoration. He affirms the story of restoration from human brokenness to the mercy of God to the full faithfulness of God. And I would suggest to you, friends, this morning, rather than simply zeroing in on David's confession, let's see David's heart for worship and let's evaluate our own expressions of worship. Are we faithful to affirm the whole story of God? Are we faithful in our acts of worship, in our prayers, in our confessions, in our singing of songs, in our whole life as we've tried to say, to continually retell to ourselves and to others the story of who God is and what God has done from human brokenness to the mercy of God to the full faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant. It matters how we order our worship. It matters the things we say and the context we put things in. It's why Adam Thompson works so hard in choosing songs to lead us to sing that tell the full story from human condition to the mercy of God to the full covenant faithfulness of God. Because when we worship together, we want to embrace and retell the whole story. But in affirming the truth and the reality of restoration, David in worship is also responding to restoration. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that this entire psalm is a response to his personal restoration. It is not a plea, in fact, for God to restore him, but a response to a God who has already restored him. It is not a quid pro quo. I will write beautiful psalms and sing songs of worship to you, and then for me, you will get me out of these jams, God. (laughs) This is not how this works. This is a, a man who is responding in fullness to what God has already done. We do not worship to attain a status with God. We worship because we have status with God. We do not worship to get stuff from God. We worship because God has richly blessed us already. Now, fair enough, David is going to face some very difficult circumstances. In fact, the son that he conceived is not going to live long. And the son, he dies and David goes through a deep, dark depression and there's turmoil in his house forever and ultimately the nation of Israel breaks apart. There are consequences for sin. But David's restoration was sure and he begins to respond to it. 
and to order himself in worship. And I love what he says towards the end when he says, listen, God, I get it. You don't just want me to go through the motions and offer a sacrifice. The covenant calls for a sacrifice, and really there was no blood sacrifice for the sins that David had committed, which is fascinating. He was fully dependent upon God to cleanse him. He couldn't do it in a human sacrificial way. And David's saying, listen, I get it. The, the, the condition of human brokenness, my condition of brokenness, you don't want me to just go through the motions of worship. He says, hey, you don't require from me, you don't even like from me a sacrifice. But what he gets at, he says, what you do want from me is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Think about wild stallions for a minute. We, uh, Rach's family goes to Assateague every year, and so next weekend we will not be here. We'll be in Assateague with Rachel's family. And one of the great realities of Assateague, depending upon what you think about it, is the presence of wild horses. They freak me out. Uh, I think horses are beautiful and nice, but I don't particularly enjoy like seeing them show up out of nowhere. And at the bathhouse, there are picture reminders of what a horse can do to you if you touch it wrong, right? Mangled faces and fingers. And... But anyway, these are unbroken horses that do what they want to do. So imagine taming a horse and saddling a horse and learning to ride a horse and bringing it into a way. And what's happening here is what David is saying. What you want from me, what real worship is, is a broken spirit. He doesn't mean that I go around being sad all the time. He means that I have been brought in submission to the king of the universe. That I've been saddled. That I'm not a wild horse running and doing whatever I want and wreaking havoc on Assateague Island. But what I am is someone who's now brought into submission for God. That the creator can use me for the things he wants to use me for. That I can serve him in these ways. A broken and contrite heart. Friends, it does not matter what you do to worship, but it does matter how you worship. Does it make sense? We cannot go through the motions of worshiping. Well, we come and we sing songs on Sunday because that's what we do. It's not my favorite part. Well, here's newsflash number one. Singing is just a small part of worship. We sometimes wrongly classify the singing as the worship portion of the sermon. It's all worship. This is all worship. We can't simply come, well, he preaches a sermon, and that's fine. We've got to engage. We've got to have a spirit that is broken, a spirit that is saddled by God, that's able to be used to, to, to serve him and to honor him. And so we engage with the songs that we're singing. We think about the words as we're singing them. We respond to what we're hearing when we sing. We engage with the teaching. We listen and we wrestle with it. We engage in the holistic realities of worship. When we pray, we don't simply have a list in front of us and just rattle it off and be done. You may as well not even do it. God says, I don't care about that. He'd rather you engage with him in a real passionate way for five minutes than rattle off a 30-minute list. Does that make sense? He doesn't care about you offering up a trite sacrifice. He cares about a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And what's more, this is a paradigm not simply for a singular act, but for, as we've suggested throughout this whole series, a life given in worship. It's why Paul would write later to the same Roman church I mentioned earlier, 
that the only acceptable thing we can do if the gospel is true, if God is who he says he is and has done what he said he's done, if you've said yes to both of those things, then the only acceptable response is to offer your life back to God. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This does not mean walking around as a sad robot, right? This means being tamed by God, being used by God, being filled with his spirit to live a life oriented towards his glory and his service rather than your own glory and your own service. It matters how we worship. And then lastly, if we combine these two things, I think what happens here is not only the affirmation of restoration and the response to restoration, but what I'll call an enlivening of restoration. That is, I would suggest to you that the true acts of true worship are acts of putting on the new self, of living fully into this new life that God calls us to. So much so that if we continue to affirm and respond, right? If you affirm the gospel is true and you respond to it, then you're going to naturally affirm it's true and keep responding to it. And as you affirm and respond and affirm and respond in this cyclical pattern, what ultimately happens is it begins to embody who you are. You begin to step into it in its fullness. And I think it enlivens the restoration that is there for you. That worship becomes a critical key to living and stepping into the new life that God offers us. David says in his Psalms, I affirm that you can bring joy. And I respond wanting this joy. And then as he writes this Psalm, he writes out of joy. He enlivens his restoration. David says, fascinatingly, listen, I affirm that you have restored me, and therefore, in response, I will tell other people that you can restore them. And then in writing Psalm 51, here we are thousands of years later, being told by David that we can be restored. He enlivens his restoration. Do you see it? In the same way, worship becomes a critical key. When you pray and when you sing and when you confess and when you engage in the scriptures and when you live your full life in orientation and submission towards God, what begins to happen is you step into the new life that God offers. Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes to the church at Colossae, take off the old self and put on the new self. What I want to tell you is it's only possible through worship. It's an orientation of life that leads to it. And when you step into it, you taste the fullness of this great new thing that God is doing. In affirming and responding to your restoration, you begin to embody it for all the world to see. So this morning, as you think about worship, I would suggest to you that Psalm 51, amongst others, is a great paradigm. Certainly, it's a psalm of confession. And we can use it as a paradigm for us in thinking about confession. But let's think even broader. What does it mean to be people in worship? When we sing, when we pray, when we confess, when we open the scriptures, when we live our lives, 
as people of worship, what does it mean to be faithful to continue to affirm who God is and what God has done? To tell the full story from human brokenness to the mercy of God to the covenant faithfulness of God. And for us to not only long for the day of new covenant like David did, but to speak the truth of the resurrection in Jesus that the new covenant is here. That we do have new hearts. And that we do have a spirit that God will not take from us. And what does it mean in our worship, in our singing, in our praying, in our confessing, in our reading of the scriptures, in the full living of our lives, to do it in response to who God is and what God has done? We worship not to get something from God, not to earn a status with God, but because God has given us everything and has given us a status. And therefore, with a broken spirit, a tamed spirit, an orientation towards God, we submit ourselves for His glory instead of our own, for His purposes instead of our own, for His kingdom instead of our own. And as we continue in the cycle of affirming and responding, we begin to enliven in us this full restoration that is true of us. We put on the new self. We become and step into this new life that is promised. We join ourselves to Jesus and in our union to Him, announce that all of this is fully true. When you worship It matters that you affirm and that you respond and that you enliven. Can I pray with you?